And I'm sorry to say that one of the prime targets for money laundering is very safe, transparent jurisdictions where which form a very good home for their money. Money makes a world go round. It makes a world go round. Money makes a world go round. Dear listeners of The Laundry, welcome back to another episode. And today we are talking about a very interesting topic. So registering a business at Companies House, the official business registry in the UK, is an easy, quick and affordable process. It just costs £12 and take only a couple of hours, allowing anyone from anywhere in the world to incorporate their business in the UK. This gives them a chance to start trading in the company's name and access lines of credit, both domestically and internationally. However, strange business owner names like Adolf Tooth Fairy Hitler appearing in the organization's database suggests that there is a limited checks being conducted and reveal a system that's vulnerable to criminal manipulation. In this episode of The Laundry, we will be exploring how criminals take advantage of the UK's company registration system and how Companies House could better protect against fraud. In the studio, we have Graham Barrow, co-host of The Dark Money Files, a financial crime fighter and a long-standing celebrity in the money laundering world. He's also UK's absolute expert on how Companies House is being used for money laundering and other fraudulent activities. Welcome so much, Graham. Oh, well, thank you for having me on your podcast, Merit. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. I am super excited to talk about this uh, topic with you. I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite a while and some of the posts that you have on Companies House, it's it's hard, it's awful to say that they are entertaining, but unfortunately they are because it's just so hard to believe that some of it is true. Well, there's a, actually there is a reason I make them entertaining because if I didn't make them entertaining, they would be so depressing that people would stop reading them. So I, I have a saying, which is you don't have to be serious to take work seriously. Uh, and I, I believe that. I think when you're dealing with a serious subject, being able to have some humor is a really important way of coping with it. Yeah, I uh, agree. Why don't we start with um, giving our audience an explanation of what kind of criminal manipulation is Companies House vulnerable to? Well, I mean, the answer to that is anything you can think of, you can probably do through Companies House. So th that will range from creating clone companies of well-known companies, creating what I call burner companies, which are short-lived companies to do brief um, scams, um, to do tax evasion, to do um, drug trafficking, human trafficking, anything that generates some money. Uh, can You can create companies that can be used in order to facilitate that. And in fact, you can create companies not to put any money through at all, but just to give legitimacy to a scam website or so so yeah however good your imagination is company's house can help you to achieve your criminal ends uh so do you have any examples of how uk registered companies have been misused in money laundering scandals i have sad to say thousands but you probably don't want to hear all of them so let me just pick a couple um last year we we so my company monitors company formations and we we noticed some companies being formed 
And very quickly, we established they were being registered to empty shops, empty retail premises. Now, of course, an empty shop is a prime candidate to start a business because you might be starting a shop there. But when five shops in the same street, all of which are empty, start a company on the same day, that's not going to be a coincidence. So we started monitoring these and eventually about 1,500 companies were registered to empty shops. But they were registered with the names of real people except the real people didn't know that they were being used to become directors and owners of these companies. And we then managed to establish that these 1,500 names had been hacked from two very large companies' human resources database. So all of these directors had worked for one of these two companies at some point in their lives, and they'd got all of their information, which meant that you could set up these companies with real people and almost certainly open bank accounts in the name of those real people um, and use them to do all sorts of criminal activities. So, so that's pretty scary. Um, go on. You were no, going to ask a question. So, well, I, was, I, was I was wondering, what kind of criminal groups are behind these? Like, who are the people setting up all these 1,500 companies? Do you, do you know that? Um, it will be a best. At best, a guess, um, because clearly their names don't appear anywhere here. Um, but there are some clear signs of uh, we, we have a significant organized crime group problem. So that we call them OCGs, um, particularly coming out of some of the former Soviet states. So, and, and, and I want to be really clear here that I, I don't want to sound like I'm being in any way racist because I don't think I am. I think. The way that OCGs work is that they will target jurisdictions outside of where they operate because they don't want their money to be flowing in the banking system where they themselves are stealing it because it's likely to be stolen. So the UK is very significantly targeted from countries outside of the UK. And in this case, there's a significant amount of um, Romanian and Hungarian activity. So I know definitively that we have a significant problem with Romanian organized criminal groups um, and it might this could be one of theirs but it's very difficult to say for sure because I'm not law enforcement I don't have access to some of the other information that would help me to understand what's going on. A lot of our listeners are uh, in the Nordics so yep. Nordic compliance professional working in banks and other regulated uh, industries uh, and so forth and it's mm, why should people in the nordics working in compliance care about what's going on in in companies house when yeah. i hear of fraudulent companies in in the uk romanian criminal like organized crime groups like what's the what's the nordic context here and i completely understand that and, and the problem for you here is is the networking um manner in which these OCGs work. So it's just a given that if you're trying to launder, there's a really interesting story this morning that broke from out of Hong Kong in the in the South China Morning Post. And it's about a lady and, and some other people who've been arrested on a six billion Hong Kong dollar money laundering scheme. There's some really interesting statistics in the story, which they operated themselves 57 bank accounts, both personal and business. But they distributed that money to at least 2,000 other bank accounts. Now, it is a given that those bank accounts will be spread across other jurisdictions. 
and I'm sorry to say that one of the prime targets for money laundering uh, or money launderers is very safe, transparent jurisdictions where which form a very good home for their money. So somewhere like the Nordics, which has a very high degree of transparency and trust, and it appears at the top of the Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, is a fantastic place to shelter your money because it can then effectively hide in plain sight because people there don't believe that they are necessarily involved in significant money laundering. So while you may not be home to the organized criminal groups as much, although you have got a problem with OCGs, I think you are almost definitely going to be part of that network of distribution you through have, which uh, the money flows. Oh, yeah, not, not good to hear. But do you have any uh, specific example of this affecting Nordic banks or Nordic banks' involvement in, you know, the yeah. you know, UK companies, etc. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could go for the cheap shot because some of your, your listeners may know that I was very heavily involved in the reporting around the Danske Bank um, scandal. I, uh, I, although I, I wasn't involved in reporting it, I worked quite closely with the journalist at Bellingsga who broke that story in, in Denmark. So And and the uh, Estonian branch of Danske Bank was stuffed full of UK companies. But actually, um, I, there was another very small Danish cooperative bank, which was shut down by the, the Danish Financial Services Authority uh, just a few years ago, which again had hundreds of accounts, um, non-resident accounts, they call them, which were UK companies. So, so that's the first issue is that if you bank UK companies, you cannot rely on companies' house data because it's not checked in any way whatsoever. But also, and, and this was particularly true of Swedbank in Sweden, they had a huge amount of counterparty payments coming in from uh, UK companies. So it's not just holding the accounts that's an issue. It is transacting with those accounts, which is an issue. And your transaction monitoring, monitoring for example, is almost certainly not checking the, the validity of the company itself. And that's very problematic if it's some of the companies I look at, which are yeah. frankly um, stupid. And that's a, another question. So, of course, you know, a Nordic bank should definitely um, check uh, the validity of a UK company. But all these, all these apparently shady companies that you post about that are being incorporated in the UK, where do they bank? Like, where do they end oh. up? Are there any ones who accept onboard them and gives them line of credit? That is well, the baffling, like a baffling question to me. Yeah. Are you ready to level up your AML and compliance game? Join us on Wednesday, March 1st for The Laundry Live, a live community event streamed on YouTube featuring subject matter experts, Q&As, some surprises and exciting topics. This is your chance to stay ahead of the curve and get up to date on the latest AML and compliance developments. Check out the event on Strice's LinkedIn page for more info. See you there. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I, I, clearly, some of them are, are where they're using high quality stolen data, they, they can access UK banking um, if they're careful. But I would have thought of the ones I monitor, probably about three quarters never bank in the UK because because from our point of view, they're so easy to see, to spot. 
um, that that I don't think they would get those accounts opened. I think they very definitely target um, online and e-money, um, you know, the new fintechs. Um, but I think they also tend to target countries on the periphery of the EU. They definitely want to be in the EU, and they want to be in the EU because they want to have access to SEPA, the, the single euro payments area. So, so that's a kind of given. But obviously, the EU is comprised of some very mature financial services and some quite young ones where they're still finding their way and they may not have the most um, exacting of uh, processes and procedures when they're doing onboarding, particularly when it's done online or electronically. So, And the thing about these criminals, Merritt, and it's really important to understand this, they are highly professional at what they do. They very often will recruit insiders within the bank to understand the specific bank's strengths and weaknesses, and they will then leverage those strengths and weaknesses to their own advantage. So most money laundering is done by professionals rather than the criminals who generate the money. Now, it's a question I ask lots of banks. If you were a professional money launderer and somebody had entrusted several million pounds, euros, dollars to you to launder, would you blindly launder that money through a bank or would you use a little bit of that money to maybe bribe somebody who works in the bank to tell you how best to launder it through the bank? Uh, And I know what the answer is to that question. And just to give the audience who haven't been following your post as closely as I have, what are some of the worst examples you've seen? And, you know, give some... Give some illustrative examples for those who don't know how crazy it actually is. Worst is an interesting word because you can have worst in terms of the, the, the value proposition and worst in terms of the human impact. So I'm going to start with the human impact. And, and it's a really important thing. When, when I talk to fellow compliance professionals, it tends to be quite technical because that's their interest. But if you talk to the general public, they're not interested in the technical they're interested in the human story. So I work a lot with the press. And the thing about getting a, a story into the, the media is it has to have a human element. So I'm going to start with the human one. So we have a very large supermarket chain here in the UK called Asda. Um, they are one of the top five supermarkets. And they, are, they have a company, and it's called Asda Stores Limited. Somebody registered a company called Asda Limited. And apparently that's perfectly acceptable and no one thought that was potentially looking a bit like the supermarket chain. But they registered it to a small terraced two-bedroom house in the north of England and then proceeded to start buying huge amounts of goods on the strength of it and not paying for them. Now the lady who lived in that house is is is, is recovering from lung cancer. She's had one of her lungs removed. Um, her mother has suffering from dementia and her, her life is pretty tough. On top of that, she started receiving mail. So far, she's received seven kilos of mail relating to these fake invoices. But not just that, she's re- started receiving letters from lawyers um, looking to take to court to recover sums. She's had bailiffs who turn up at the door to take some of her furniture away. And as she repeatedly says, does this look like this small terraced house in Huddersfield? Does it really look like the head office of one of the country's largest supermarkets, Jane? But their response was, well, that's where this company is registered. And she said, yes, but that is not the supermarket. 
But when she wrote to Company's House, they said it was not similar enough to the supermarket to meet the requirement to have it struck off, which is quite surprising. Yeah, that's uh, yeah awful. And as you said, the human impact is huge when you're able to do uh, to do such things. Yes. So, so let me give you a value one now. This is going back a bit, and it relates to Danske Bank, but it's so eye-watering, really wonderful, that I can't not do it. So I had some of the bank statements from Danske Bank shared with me by, by the journalists, which, of course, have never seen the light of day because I want to carry on living. Um, but one of them was a UK limited liability partnership, which is kind of like a company, but it's a partnership, but it still functions the same way. It was actually created in July 2007, but they opened the account at Danske Bank in November 2007. So this was a three-month-old company, registered to, a, to a, a, a luxury apartment in the centre of London, but operating from an address in Moscow. Quite interesting. And obviously banking in Tallinn in Estonia. So that's already an interesting com combination. Um, the transactions were all kind of... Um, retail transactions so they were dealing in building materials and clothes and computers and all sorts of stuff but they never had a website and in fact they don't appear on the internet anywhere and the account closed 13 months later and in, in that 13 months 1.2 billion dollars went through that single account at Danska in Estonia which is quite a good trick to pull for a company that's selling technology but doesn't appear anywhere on the internet it's yeah that's you know. pretty that solid was, yeah, and that was at the start of what's become known as the Danske Bank scandal. It went on for another seven or eight years, and nobody at the time, I'm not trying to criticise anybody, but what I'm saying is that $1.2 billion for a brand new company that's got no internet presence, which is operating out of Moscow, but, but registered to a two-bedroom flat in the centre of London, has a few red flags, <laughs> I think. Yeah, you should. you could imagine. Uh, I mean, yeah. the banking sector in London or, you know, the UK financial services sector has got to invest heavily in KYC and AML solutions or because these flags yeah. should, you you should be thinking that it's possible to uncover on onboarding or, you know, yeah. these things. And, you know, there's a problem there because I, I completely agree with you, but, but actually the focus on the investment, I, let me just step back a minute. I think compliance departments, financial crime, have two different types of risk. One is financial crime risk, but the other one is financial crime compliance risk. What I mean by that is the chance of being fined a lot of money by your regulator. Now, what tends to happen is the focus is on the compliance risk because firms don't want to be fined lots of money by the regulator, but not necessarily on the financial crime risk. And that means that the KYC tends to be skewed towards the legal requirements and not enough towards, why are we doing this? What are we trying to catch? What would be the signs of somebody operating criminally? Because there is this view, and I've worked in a lot of these banks, so I do know, as long as we've got the paperwork right, and it's important, don't get me wrong, it's important, but it's not the end of the story. That's the KYC. The due diligence is then interrogating that paperwork properly to understand what it's telling you. And I, I think Far too often we stop at KYC. Okay, we've got the documents. They're in the file. We're good to go. And then forget to actually look at those documents and say, does it make sense? Mm. Um, what do you think is the, well, the path forward for companies? I know you have 
you know, you've been working on this for a long time and actually yeah. being able to have change happen. But what's yeah. what's next on the horizon? Tell tell me a little bit about, you know, the what has okay. happened on top of all the work you've done. Well, quite thrillingly, I, I found myself sitting in the UK House of Commons, which is our, our parliament. We have a thing called a, a public bill committee. So when they enact legislation, they ask expert witnesses, and, and I apparently was one of those, to, to comment on, on the bill, which means that currently before Parliament, there is a thing called the Economic Crime and Corporate Reform Bill, which part of which is to reform companies' house. Now, this may come as a surprise to your listeners, but one of the things they're going to do is they're going to start requiring people who create companies to, to verify their identity. Oh, yeah, that is so. Uh, you would assume that that uh, that was in place. It seems like the minimal requirements. So about 30 years ago, when when ID verification came in, so for example, if you go, we have a public library system in the UK. I, I, do you have the same in, yeah. in Norway, public library? So, and, and they're run by local authorities and you can go and get a library ticket. But in order to get a library ticket, you do have to provide verification not just of your identity but where you live so it would be you know your passport and a utility bill whatever so to borrow a book you have to provide id but to start a company to own that company to be a director of the company nothing at all you don't even have to provide a real address i know of companies that are registered to addresses that simply do not exist and you can call yourself as one company has jesus holy christ <laughs> oh uh, I know that you have done a lot of posts on the address part of, of Companies yes. House. And uh, um, what are some of the most misused addresses or streets in the UK? Well, I guess you've got to be careful about misused because a lot of these addresses are home to com completely legitimate companies alongside some really, really problematic ones. There is, um, there's a road in London called Shelton Street. Last time I looked, there were 104,000 companies registered to that one address. So I can only imagine the queue for the water cooler in the morning must be quite extensive. Um, I think they have their own dedicated delivery van from the Royal Mail to deliver their post because most days, two to 300 new companies are added to that address, of which probably three quarters are from... Um, people who do not live in the UK. I, I saw one yesterday from New Caledonia and I actually had to go and look up where that was. It's in the Pacific. It's a group of Pacific Islands, but uh, they were Albanian living in New Caledonia. I'm going to be honest, I I have some doubts as to whether that is entirely legitimate. Uh, and you also said that people register companies to addresses that do not exist? Yes. So we have a postcode system in the UK, and and there's a there's a very simple piece of software that checks the validity of postcodes. But Companies House do not use it. Um, they may tell you that they have no power to to use it. But so so I've seen companies registered to entirely fictitious postcodes, which you can find that in a matter of a second or two is made up because it it, it simply is not in the database of postcodes. But nobody checks. Uh, it seems like the list just goes on and on and on, but what are some of the other flaws of companies' house that you see are, you know, being taken advantage of? Um, so we have a thing called statement of capital, 
Uh, a statement of capital is the issued share capital, whether paid up or not paid of a company. My favorite was a, a company um, which is so long-winded, I'm not even going to bother telling you the name, but it was registered by a gentleman from Equatorial Guinea, which is obviously a hotspot of UK company formation. Um, but it was it was created with six hundred and seventy trillion pounds <laughs> of capital, which which to put into context equates to the entire global economic output for ten years. <laughs> so I was going to write and say, "Would you do me a favour? Would you just repay the entire global debt?" <laughs> but we can all start again. But but there is nothing to stop you from doing that at all. So you can create a company with any any amount of capital you can you know as i say you can i mean there's another one in the name of john smith which is probably the single most common name in the uk john smith who lives at any street any town anywhere <laughs> that's that's his company address and name uh yeah i don't even know what to say to that it's uh i keep forgetting my follow-up <laughs> questions just because it's so hard to believe <laughs> that what you're saying is is true um yeah yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a serious side to all of this as well. But like I say, you have to occasionally pull out the amusing bits because otherwise it becomes just too, too much. So, um, yeah. And you, um, you have started a company or a product called Risk Alert 24-7. Uh-huh. And why don't you tell us, um, talk to me about it. What is it? How does it work? Because it's through that you pick up on all of these uh, crazy stories, right? It is. It is. About 15 months ago, Company's House launched, I've got to tell you, Company's House is actually really easy to, to, to use and search. And about 15 months ago, they, they launched their advanced search function, which allows you to search by not just name and address, but things like the standard industry classification, um, which most people might kind of know. It's, it's what describes the sort of business you're doing. But me being an obsessive kind of, you know, uh, on the spectrum type of person thought, well, that's really interesting. So I started doing much more detailed searches and immediately started realizing that there was a lot more um, suspicious activity than I ever thought. And I started posting this. And, and, and this chap up in Edinburgh in Scotland called Robbie happened to comment on one of my posts and said, oh, I've got a product that can, that can represent this quite well graphically. And it did. So he and I started talking and I started talking about how, how I was working on company's house and he said you know i can automate i can do all the stuff you're doing but do it in a tiny fraction of the time it takes you and that's a good idea so we, we started playing around and, and and the one thing that really triggered our view that we need to start a company was that that we found a road in anglesey anglesey is a tiny little island off the coast of wales and and it's probably the, the population is only several thousand where in the space of a week um, 14 houses in the same road had started zoos. Zoos? Well, that's not likely. <laughs> like animal yeah. zoos? Zoological gardens, yeah. Well, that's not very likely. And every single one of them was Hungarian, and we thought that's even less likely. <laughs> so, so, um, but that was extracted from a great deal of data, and we thought, well, this is, this is good. So Robbie said, let's start a company, and, and he came up with, we're going to call it Risk Alert, and I said, fantastic. So combination of my weird brain that thinks algorithmically without any great effort and his ability to program created risk alert and it does two things one is it it actually generates in real time lists of suspicious companies as they are being formed 
but it also allows you to, um, based on all of the red flags that we've identified, and there's now 82 of them, which is pretty good going, um, you can put in historical data. So, so let's say you're a bank with a whole load of companies, which will then risk assess those companies for you and give you a risk-weighted response of, these are the companies you probably want to be looking at. Now, if you, if you kind of couple that with transaction monitoring, so if you get a transaction monitoring alert, you think, well, hold on, now this company's also been flagged as a fairly potentially suspicious company. That really adds a lot of weight to the, to the quality of the alert. So we think there's quite a compelling proposition. And it's also given me a huge fun on LinkedIn generating all sorts of ridiculous stuff that I, I can post and, and become something I call myself a media tart. I quite enjoy all the social, um, what am I called, a social influencer. Mm, yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, very interesting, uh, interesting to hear, um, hear about. So I see we oh. are nearing towards the end, but uh, um, what are some of the compliance trends for 2023 that you see from a UK perspective that you see will be important well, this year? It's a really interesting question. Uh, one of the things that's going to separate the UK now from the rest of mainland Europe, and I've had many conversations about this, is the recent ruling around beneficial ownership. Mm. So mainland Europe, because of the, the Luxembourg case, which if, if your listeners are not aware, there was a ruling that said that, that you cannot make beneficial ownership publicly freely available. We're seeing registers in Europe starting to shut down their access to um, entities, which is distressing from my point of view. There's no sign of that in the UK. So the UK seems very, very committed to maintaining a fully accessible, free-to-access public register, which I think is brilliant. It may be full of rubbish, but at least we know it's full of rubbish because we're allowed to go and look at it. So I think one of the really interesting strands for 23 that I see is that developing argument between the right to privacy and the right to transparency. And at the moment, I think the right to privacy is just is is holding sway, is kind of ahead. But I'm not sure people understand by claiming that right to privacy, they are also enabling criminals to hide so much easier. And I think that's a really important debate that we should be having is the balance between the cost to society of having that level of privacy, because most people see it as a benefit. There is a significant cost involved as well. Mm, yeah, I agree. Uh, we did an episode on the UBO ruling, and that is always the topic where you end up. The you know each government's job is to prese- protect its citizen, and now the privacy argument is really strong. But okay, uh, if you protect the UBOs of a business, what what are you really protecting the rest of the citizen? What are you enabling those to do if they are criminals and so forth? So it's a very okay. interesting debate. Exactly. And particularly where we've already given those people significant benefits in allowing them to form a limited liability company and tax benefits on top. But we're now saying you can have all of those benefits and you can stay, you know, secret. You can keep your details private. So so the people creating them get win, win, win. Mm. Society gets lose, 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 which doesn't seem like a pretty good deal. No, I agree with uh, that standpoint. Luckily in Europe, though, a lot, even though some UBO registers are shutting down, Luckily, a lot of the ownership registers are staying open due to the fact that the legislation for 
creating them in the first place is not rooted in yeah. anti-money laundering, but other sort of arguments as well. So that is definitely a positive yes. as well. But yeah, it's not good that we're going in this direction. No, no it'll be interesting to see how the EU deals with the AML directives following that ruling to see whether they try and find a form of wording that will allow that to carry on in some form or they appeal against that judgment but I don't have any great hopes for that. Yeah I'm I'm hopeful but maybe that's just uh, you know clinging to the you know. It's because you're you're still young and 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 forward-looking and I'm old and sitting. No don't say that. Uh, <laughs> um any other trends that you see um, on the horizon or going forward? Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Again, here in the UK, the, the, the year has started with some significant fines being handed out by the FCA. Yeah. So it does seem like the, the, you know, so I think two things. One is I think regulatory action is going to carry on quite significantly. A lot of it still historical because, because so many of these problems are still emerging. Um, I think the other thing is that there's the whole crypto piece is going to be Come very very live simply because even the major I mean you know we haven't talked about Sam Bankman Fried and and Binance and others who and, and Coinbase have just been fined fifty million dollars so even the, the companies that are regarded as pretty solid are struggling to deal with the the money laundering requirements that are or the anti money laundering requirements that are placed on them so I'd. I still think the jury's out slightly on crypto. I'm a huge fan of, of blockchain, which I think is significantly fantastic uh, technology. I'm, I'm still not entirely won over by the crypto argument. This is the chap who's he's invested a very small amount in crypto and see it drop by 75%, so maybe I'm biased. Um, and uh, as, a, you know, as a final question for this conversation, yes. what is your... Uh, favorite part of working in financial crime prevention and compliance? Oh, it's got to be making a difference. I, I guess, you know, the the thing that, that I'd never planned and is is something I really enjoy is is this crossover between compliance and, and, and media. So for whatever reason, I've been able to gain traction with mainstream media on some of the significant challenges that we face. So uh, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I'm going to record with the BBC tomorrow on a story about Chinese crypto scams. Next week, there's an article appearing in one of our main um, newspapers, the Daily Mirror, um, about um, uh, about clone companies. So I think being able to raise public awareness about the challenges we face is, is really helpful. Yeah, I like that, and it's really good to 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 do that too because it is not just um, compliance is not just a boring paper exercise. It's actually impacting no. society, and more people should open their eyes to the impact that that it has in like our everyday lives and and uh, society. Yes, yeah, ab absolutely, and 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 of course, the the more the public become aware of the problem, the easier it is to carry them them with us when we need them to work with us on, you know, opening accounts and requiring their paperwork, it becomes easier to explain if that, um, if they're aware of the problems that not providing it can cause. I think we need to wrap up there. I see time is running out. Thank you so okay. much for coming to Absolute the Laundry Gram. It's been a pleasure and a lot of fun to discuss this very serious topic with you. So thanks. I would love to have you back on another episode in the future. 
be delighted to come back and talk to you. Your money make a world go round.